Good morning, Southside. It's good to be with you this morning. So we're nearing the end of the Becoming Human series, and uh, we've had a front row seat into some pretty, um, pretty amazing, pretty personal stories of people whose lives, um, if, you, if you noticed, they weren't perfectly scripted. They weren't free of struggle. They weren't free of pain, right? Because no one actually plans and hopes to have cancer, right? In fact, we do a lot of things to push that possibility away. No one hopes for family members that will turn on each other, right? And no one hopes for um, dark, dark times in their lives where they might even consider taking their own life, right? That's not, that's not ever in anyone's plan A. So being human is hard, right? Sometimes it's scary, even. And sometimes we w wish we could just escape and be free from it. Just get out of here, right? I think sometimes we just don't feel like we're up to the task of being human. I remember years ago um, being in a conversation, I think we were talking about uh, movie plots and things like that, and we were talking about this idea of, you know, would you rather have loved, like really loved, and then lose it, some tragedy or something, or would you just rather have never loved? And I have to be honest, like it's a bit embarrassing to admit now, but there was a big part of me that just thought, oh, why ever opt for the option with a huge risk of heartbreak and pain and failure? Things are going pretty well right now. Hard pass on that, right? And I think another part of me knew that I was letting go of kind of the more adventurous, full way of living if I did that, but that was, the fear of pain was pretty real, right? Last summer, I was up here and I had the chance to talk a little bit about the role of shame and self-criticism in our lives and the way that that can just subtly start to disconnect us from ourselves and from others and from God. And I think that what you'll find this morning for any of you that were here last summer is that this feels like a little bit of a sequel. So I hear that the talk from last summer is still online if you wanna go back and watch them in reverse if that feels useful to you afterwards. Anyway, I want to hone in on a couple of ways that we can still stay connected to ourselves and really live our humanity in its fullness. Because that's what we were made for. That's who we were made to be. This last year, I came across something that Eugene Peterson said, and it really stuck with me. So for those of you who don't know who Eugene Peterson is, he is probably best known for um, having rewritten the entire Bible in common language so that just average people like you and I can understand a little bit better. So he's a pretty wise, um, lovely human. He actually passed away last year. And he said this, you don't become more spiritual by becoming less human. You don't become more spiritual by becoming less human. Can you notice what it feels like or to hear that? Does it surprise you? <clears throat> Does it seem con like it confirms what you thought, what your hunch was? 
I think that for people that grew up in the church, this might feel a little contrary to messages you received growing up. I think even if you didn't grow up in the church, this would feel a little bit contrary to your observations of Christianity and church culture and that kind of thing. And I know for me, absolutely, this caused pause when I read this because I thought, oh, oh wait, this, this doesn't feel like what I was told and what I grew up believing, right? I can recall having the very distinct belief that being more godly probably had everything to do with becoming less of myself, less human, because everything about me felt just a little bit flawed, a little bit problematic, like it would probably just get me in trouble, right, if I listened to myself too much. I didn't feel like I could trust my instincts at all. I was actually just downright suspicious of my instincts. So what do you think Eugene Peterson had in mind? when he said that. What's it about our humanity that's valuable? What is it about being human that we might need to consider before assuming that it's just all bad, that it gets in the way, we need to minimize it? What is it about the fact that the essence of who we are, heart, soul, mind, it's carried in a human body, flesh and bones? Maybe there's something worth thinking about, considering, before we try to escape and minimize that experience, right? I think a really important starting point when thinking about this question is to think about the way that God shows up in this world. Because there are many ways that you can encounter God in the world, but one of the most compelling and transforming ways that he's shown up was when he took on flesh and blood. When God showed up and revealed himself in Jesus, God becoming human tells a really powerful story about how God feels about our humanity. One wise theologian and priest said this, God loves things by becoming them. Isn't that beautiful? God loves things by becoming them. Is there any more powerful way to convey love than to become the object of your affection, to become intimately involved and identify with all of the parts of their experience. Colossians 1, verse 15 says this. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So it gives us something to lay eyes on, to understand in a different way, right? And then it goes on to say, and God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. All of his fullness. He didn't have second thoughts and think, oh, all of my holiness in that, this does not seem like a good plan. Pleased to have all of the fullness of his divinity wrapped up in the messiness of a human body. It's crazy to think about. We're often looking for a way out and to escape and to figure out our kind of messy lives. And God came in, fully in, right? And when God came into the world as Jesus, it showed us a new way of being, new ways of understanding God. And we really need that. Because a lot of us, through experiences and teachings and all that kind of stuff, have sometimes walked away with um, ideas about who God is that aren't really helpful, right? God sometimes seems scary, kind of a heavy-handed judge. 
someone who's probably just perpetually disappointed with you. Have you ever walked around with that feeling? But Jesus the human tells a new story. It helps us reimagine God in a way that might make us want to live. God becoming human wasn't about God eradicating and getting rid of everything that was so despicable. Actually, it was about God redeeming that what he loved, that which he loved, right? Showing how do we do this? Oh, let me show you. I'll come do it with you, right? So how can we live well in humanity if humanity is actually valuable? What might it look like if we live in a way that respects the fact that God's plan for us is to be human? Struggles, frailties, and all, right? We live in a really amazing time in history where there's beautiful intersections that can be clearly found through neuroscience. They show us the things that help us be spiritually healthy are actually the things that also help us be mentally, emotionally, and even physically healthy. And I'm going to talk about one of the factors today that is a key contributor to our overall well-being in all those areas. So there are a lot of different reasons that people might come into a counselor's office. And what I've found is that there seem to be some common themes that emerge. And one common theme is the struggle with big, uncomfortable feelings, right? not comfortable, don't know what to do with it, want to get away from it, right? When you're feeling confident, hopeful, self-assured, those aren't the times that you feel like you need any help. But when the other stuff comes up, like rejection, like heavy shame, anger that you just can't seem to walk away from, suddenly that feels like something that's not so good, not so helpful, right? and people start to feel like they don't know what to do. It's just, it's humanity. It's how we live. And then sometimes we even have conflicting emotions, and that can be extra confusing. So you might be feeling hurt, and also a little bit angry, and then there's a part of you that's also relieved. So that can be kind of a confusing experience, right? Or maybe you have an experience where you feel really excited and joyful about something, and then there's this kind of sneaky thing that comes in that's also making you feel a little guilty. Sometimes that stuff is hard to figure out, and it, it makes us feel a bit chaotic inside, right? But if there's one thing that I know, this feeling is universal. You all have feelings. That experience is universal. You even have feelings about your feelings. We're just that advanced of a species, right? And our emotions are an innate part of being human. So you guys, we're going to talk about feelings today. Aren't you glad you woke up for this? Because <laughs> when we don't talk about feelings and emotions, when we pretend they don't exist, when we pretend they don't affect us, they just go underground for a little while. And when they reemerge, they're generally even more problematic, right? Suddenly, you find yourself maybe Googling things because you've got some sort of symptoms and ailments that aren't really comfortable. Or maybe you find yourself sitting in a doctor's office asking questions about distressing emotional or physical symptoms because your emotions live in your body. 
So sometimes you start to feel the effects in different ways. So like it or not, if you're human, you feel. Some of us feel a bit more acutely than others. Some of us are more aware of our feelings and emotions than others. Some of us have gotten so good at switching them off very, very quickly that we're pretty sure that we're not impacted by them, right? That's also very common. So my hope today is that in learning about this part of humanity that we all share, that we will be able to live more fully as ourselves and more freely, not crippled and held back by the fact that we don't know what to do with a huge part of our existence, right? So I wanna give you a few quick facts about emotions. Did you know that emotions developed in us as a survival mechanism? They're very functional. They're meant to help us determine what's safe and what's dangerous, what we should push in for, what we should pull away and protect from, right? You can think back to hunter-gatherer societies and them needing to use almost like what's sometimes called a sixth sense. Is this safe? Is this place safe? Are these people safe? And did you know also that emotions are unconscious? They're intense biological responses. You have no means of exerting direct, voluntary control over your emotions. Surprising? The leading emotion researcher and psychologist says this, we're about as effective at stopping an emotion as we are at preventing a sneeze. They happen that fast, right? You can't think your way out of an emotional reaction. They are biological impulses, and they travel much, much faster than your cognitive abilities. So contrary to public or popular belief and cultural folklore, Feelings and emotions don't just impact the female gender. <laughs> Is that a surprise for some of you? And they're not just annoying distractions from business as, usual, business as usual. Although that's what a lot of us have been taught. They're universal, they're human, and all of us need to know what to do with them. Neuroscience also confirms that we are not primarily thinking machines, who happened to feel a little bit? It's the opposite. We are primarily feeling machines that also think a bit, right? So for those of us who are taught not to trust our emotions or instincts, but to really rely on our intellectual capacities, right? This can be kind of confusing at first glance. Our emotions originate in our body and then they travel to our brain and there is a nine to one ratio in terms of the messages that are sent in your body. For every one message that your brain sends to your body, there are nine that are sent from your body back up to your brain. We get a lot of information from our bodies. So hopefully that helps you appreciate how important it is that we don't live a disembodied life where we're constantly numbing out, tuning out, pushing down, right? It's a pretty harmful way to live, and it doesn't respect your humanity in the way you were made. But the goal here isn't to become all touchy-feely, wallowing in our emotions. It's a fear for some people, I think, and legitimate. The goal is to become self-aware people who are able to recognize and respond well to emotions.
especially the hard ones. We want to be emotionally fit, right? Because it's a significant part of our being human. Feelings are really great information. They're worth getting curious about, but they are not good facts. There's a difference. Good information, not good facts. For instance, if I walk into a room or onto a stage and I feel a little scared, that's good information to have. It's not necessarily a fact, though, that this room is inherently scary or that the people in it are all not safe, right? But something in me is telling me, watch out. Don't let your, don't let your guard down, right? Protect yourself a bit. This might be not altogether safe for you. And I then need to do the work of decoding what I'm going to do about that and how I'm going to respond to that emotion. Our emotions are informed by our beliefs and by our experiences, and we need to evaluate those and get curious about them, not stuff them down. So the ability to notice, process, and respond thoughtfully, it's a big deal. It helps us function well. It helps us remain in healthy relationships. Yay for emotional regulation and relationships, right? with your partner, with your family members, with your kids. It helps us feel less chaotic inside when we're able to do this, right? If we just ignore, shove down, turn off, we don't respond well. We, we end up just reacting. So there are many reasons that we try to shove down and kind of minimize our emotional responses. Our culture has provided us with a lot of ideas about what appropriate uh, emotions are, what the appropriate amount of an emotion is, what's acceptable. Men especially have been given really strict scripts about what an appropriate and respectable emotion is, right? Some good, some not. What would a real man do, right? Given the information I've, I've told you thus far, can you appreciate how problematic is to ask half of the population to become disembodied and to shove down a part of their experience? How well do you think that um, helps them function and respond to people in relationships, right? And then the other half of the, of the population, we shame into having too much emotion. Get it under control, right? These are problematic scripts that we're taught. Too much emotion, that's weak. Certain kind of emotions, well, that's unattractive. Right? And church and Christian culture has typically encouraged moderated, controlled emotions as well. And some of us have even been told that some of them are just wrong, sinful, don't have those, ooh, right? And some of us grew up in families that didn't have a lot of space or tolerance for emotions. Get it under control. That was the message we were given, right? We were a bit on our own when it came to dis distressing emotions. When we don't know how to respond to our own emotions, it makes it hard to respond to other people's emotions. So in an attempt to maybe ease someone else's distress and also our own, sometimes we offer suggestions, little advice, some feedback. Do you guys like getting feedback on your emotions? It's not always helpful. So, Common feedback might be something like, uh, 
simple advice and statements, right? Things that tend to dismiss and kind of minimize a person's experience. In church circles, sometimes it can look like taking a short verse from the Bible and offering it up as maybe a help, like, hey, the Bible says, consider it joy when you face trials. Maybe try that. What happens when you don't feel joyful then? What's your experience then? What kind of emotion arises in you then, right? When someone says, oh, the Bible says don't be anxious. Maybe you even read that, that, that verse yourself and say, ah, that's what it says. What's wrong with me? I do feel anxious, right? So sometimes well-meaning, simple advice verses, they, they're not as helpful as we think. It has the effect, I think, of using a slingshot to apply medicine to a wound. It's like firing it at them, right? Not really a healing effect so much. Well intended, but not really healing. It actually makes a, peop a person, people, feel more unsafe, makes them feel defensive, makes them want to hide. And hiding is completely counterproductive for healing, right? Another common uh, response to emotion is just being told, get over it. You're being kind of needy, right? You're so dramatic. You ever heard someone say that to you? Have you maybe offered that to one of your friends or family members? Just in your own distress. It felt like too much for them and for you. I'd suggest to you that if there are people around you that are struggling to just get over it, that there are probably some reasons for that. I would guess that one of those reasons might be that they were never given the tools in their early years, in developmental years, to know how to dis respond to the distress and what to do to, to help feel calm again. Also, if it's not been safe for them to feel or to process feelings, and for people that have been through traumatic experiences, either when they were young or later on in life, this can cause an instinctive reaction in us that's meant to protect us from overwhelming distress, but down the road, this protective instinct can actually get in the way and make us feel stuck, make it hard to just get over it. So for us, as a friend, as a family member, as a member of the church, as a human on this planet, we're not doing people any favors when we tell people to just get over it. In fact, we're doing more harm than good. And I think sometimes we forget. Even the Bible is full of stories. People who feel and people that express that feeling, right? There are multiple places that this happens in the Bible, but I want to talk about one little book that's just right in the middle of the Bible, Lamentations. We don't often preach out of that book. Maybe you don't actually go and flip to that for fun reading either, right? It's a few chapters, and it's the story, well, it's the poems, that someone writes in response to the distress that they were overwhelmed with when their whole city, community, church, all of the things that they held as safe and sacred and, and kind of like safe ground, they were completely destroyed, right? And as a result, people were doing incredibly atrocious things, and it was, it was horrifying. 
And so the author of Lamentations spends chapter upon chapter upon chapter writing poems of anguish, anger, feeling abandoned, accusing God of all kinds of things. Where were you? Do you not see what's happened? Right? He does not hold back at all. And there's nowhere in Lamentations or anywhere around it in the Bible that then comes back and shames that author for saying these things about God or to God or having these feelings and not writing them in. There's no indication of that at all. These were legitimate responses to horrific situations. They were very, uh, very expected and normal, right? Over and over in the book of Lamentations, you will read the phrases, look and see, look and see, look, someone look, someone see me in my pain. There's a cry to know that you're not alone and that it's seen, right? The opposite of when we tell someone to just get over it. It's important to acknowledge, to feel the emotions that come up, especially the really hard ones. Not beat yourself up or judge yourself, right? When we push them down, when we ignore them, when we sweep them under the rug, you come from a family that just sweeps things under the rug. We don't talk about our emotions here, right? The avoidance can make things worse. When we sweep things under the rug, um, emotion researchers and psychologists would tell you that's like sweeping it into your nervous system. It stays there. It's not going away, right? And when you um, do this, usually what ends up popping up a little bit later are things like anxiety, Depression, addiction, low self-esteem, right? Things that felt helpful in the moment, like tucking it away, stay with you and need to be dealt with at some point. So when we pay attention, notice, get curious about these things, and like in Lamentations, when you put words to them, when you voice what's going on, sometimes those are the beginning steps to being able to feel less chaotic, to being able to put that stuff down and not feel weighted by it. There's an example I like to use of thinking about the experience of a distressed child or toddler that I think is helpful to illustrate this point. Most of us have been around distressed child, child children and toddlers at some point in our life, right? And you know that when they want to get your attention, they can do it quite well. They know how to get our attention, right? Lots of arm tugging and clothes tugging and screaming and that kind of thing. You know when kids are distressed. They will let you know, right? And do you notice, though, that the less you pay attention and respond to them, the worse it usually gets? They can ramp right up, right? So if I'm just like, hey, go away, go away, I'll talk to you later. What? Just deal with it, go. It doesn't go away, it doesn't solve the problem at all. But what does seem to change is when I turn to, for me, my, my own child maybe, and say, hey, you're, you're really upset, what's going on? And then they have a chance to tell you, oh hey, my brother just hit me, or I just fell and skinned my knee, or someone stole my snack, or whatever happened, right? Oh, okay, I can understand why you're upset now, right? Do you want to go do something else? Do you want to, I don't know, whatever the option is that's fitting, right? So you don't even need to solve the problem, but by turning to them and listening, validating the experience, right? Making them feel less alone in it, 
usually the volume comes down a bit and the distress settles just a bit. It's a good first step. Paying attention helps us feel and able to be able to respond better, right? It helps you be able to connect both the feeling parts of you back to the thinking parts of you, which sometimes kind of go offline when we're overwhelmed with distress. Remember that book of the Bible, Lamentations? Well, after some of these poems of pain that I was telling you about, a few chapters in, there's an interesting thing that happens. After taking the time to completely lay bare, not holding back at all how he feels, the author kind of seem, seemingly irrationally or surprisingly kind of shifts out of the poetry of pain, just for a brief bit. In Lamentations 3, verse 21, after giving a whole litany of reasons why he remembers all the ways that he has been hurt and harmed and why he's so distressed, this is what he says. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed. His compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. In the section leading up to this, the author is very clear that this is not a rational or intellectual way to respond to the situation. He has every right to be angry and overwhelmed. But somehow he hangs on to faith and trust. There's some deeper knowing that's there that he manages to hang on to. About nine years ago, we had an experience that left us feeling like the rug had gotten pulled out from under us. And I can feel the emotion coming up already. <laughs> it's not a story I anticipated getting up on the stage and sharing, but I'm gonna try today because I think it's useful to illustrate this point. I also wanna say that it's not meant to be a prescriptive story, like a how-to story, or one that's reflective of everyone's experience. This is just my experience. I was five months pregnant when without warning, <sighs> our baby girl arrived much, much too early. It was too early for her to live with us in this world. It was a complete shock. And the whole experience was very destabilizing and disorienting. I had never known this kind of grief before, and it swept over me and showed up in many surprising ways. And people grieve in different ways, and I tend to be more private when I grieve, so there was no pictures of tiny hands and tiny feet posted on Facebook. There were just a few close friends. And I could usually paste on a smile for the rest of everyone. And there were days when I thought that maybe, just maybe, I was starting to feel better, and that this would all just be a distant memory soon. 
that the images that were etched in my mind and the weight that I felt in my heart. <laughs> that they would be a little bit foggier and that they would feel different. But grief is sneaky. And angry, critical feelings and thoughts became very common interruptions in my thought process. Sometimes so intrusively that I had serious fear for my mental state. Showing up at church or attempting to pray often brought an eerie, kind of empty, a numb feeling. Not the familiar comfort that I had had experienced before. So I went through the motions. Life was just about going through the motions. Some friends were gracious, offering support and space as we needed. And sometimes as time wore on, we encountered the odd interaction that did not feel useful. People's belief in God's provision and protection, something that I previously would have shared, that no longer felt helpful to me, not hopeful. As we entered into a subsequent pregnancy later that year, I had a very keen awareness that sometimes God doesn't answer desperate prayers in ways that feel helpful or caring. And sometimes bad things do happen to good people. And who was I to think that I would be exempt from the pain? So a grim, cynical outlook became very familiar, and bitterness hung very close. But grace broke through in, in slight and beautiful ways. Simple moments of connection with my husband and dear friends who would let me vent unfiltered without judgment. That was like air in my lungs. Time alone with my hands in the soil trying to create beauty in a garden felt cathartic. And some bittersweet redemption also came years later when I had the chance to walk through a similar experience with a dear friend. This was not my plan A. This is not anyone's plan A. And I don't ever want to walk that road again. But I know some things now that I don't think I could have known before. Not in the same way. Somehow through all the pieces, through the months and years that followed, there came a knowing. A deep in your bones knowing knowing that I think can only come from having lived through the pain. Some truth and hope emerged. Hope about life, even after a very senseless death. Not any kind of intellectual truth. More like a hindsight knowing that slowly settled deep inside of me. And it let me know let me know a lot of things about pain. <laughs> and it also let me know that I had never been alone, that we had never been alone, and that God's kindness and goodness was real, and it was present, even in the pain. I think that if we have a chance to sift our way through, all the way through, the parts of us that get rattled, broken apart, crushed, and experiences like this. The truth that we can emerge with is deep. And it isn't the kind of thing that you read and have to convince yourself of, right? 
it's a knowing that you get at kind of a heart or gut level. You feel it in your bones. Eugene Peterson, in the message, he wrote Lamentations 3, verse 28, like this. When life is heavy and hard to take, go off by yourself, enter the silence, bow in prayer, don't ask questions, wait for hope to appear. Don't run from trouble, take it full force, full in the face. The worst is never the worst. Why? Because the master won't ever walk out and fail to return. So wherever you're at today, whether you're on the other side of your worst experience, your worst nightmare, if you're right in the middle of it, whether you live in a sort of low-grade continual fear that the worst might still happen, or if you have thus far felt pretty insulated from these kind of life-altering moments, can I say to you that every one of your stories, every one of your journeys matters. Each one is witnessed by a God who sees you and who longs to be a source of hope and life for you. And if you're not feeling that today, if that feels like a bit of a stretch for you, that's okay too. Would you let me hold that hope for you? Would you let the people in this room who have experienced enough of God to also have that deep, deep in your bones knowing that God is present, would you let them hold the hope for you? Because healthy spirituality is honest. You don't have to be less human to be more spiritual, right? So let's make space, compassionate, non-judgmental space for others to do this because this kind of stuff is not meant to be carried alone. You guys, I wonder if you maybe would like to stand with me to close. Let's pray together. God, it's overwhelming to think of the way that you really feel about humanity. The way that you chose to become one with us. Would you show us how to live well? Would you give us the ability to be fully present in our own lives and in the lives of those around us? And would you show us how and with who we need to start holding more space? How and with who do we need to try again because we didn't get it right? So that the people around us don't feel like they need to hide and they can feel safe and you can come in 
then you can do your healing work. Thank you, God. Amen. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you at any of our three Sunday services held at Sardis Secondary School on Stevenson Road in Chilliwack, British Columbia. For more information, please visit southsidelife.com.